This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning, everyone. I hope that uh, this morning finds you well. Uh, let's go to God in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear from His Word in Titus chapter 2. So let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you this morning, uh, once again, uh, we come before you as your creatures, and we rejoice and give thanks that we are able to hear from you from your Word. Uh, we pray that you may help us to understand the full depths of what you're saying today, that it may really not just speak to us as facts, but as uh, words of uh, knowledge that we know about you so that we can respond rightly to you in a deep personal relationship. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, many years ago, before I became a pastor, uh, I used to work for this company called Hewlett Packard. You know, they make computers, uh, laptops, uh, printers, things like that. And I remember when I was working there, I had a boss, and I won't tell you um, who uh, exactly that person's name was, but let's say this person's name was M. Okay, the letter M. Anyway, so one day I uh, was trying to talk to M, my boss, about Jesus. And uh, <clears throat> to my great surprise, uh, M said to me, oh, don't talk to me about Christians, you know. They're all hypocrites. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was a very staunch Christian, borrowed money from me, uh, lied to me and never paid me back. Uh, don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't want to know anything about Jesus. Now that really made me really sad. And I think what made me really sad was to see that actually what she said was sometimes quite true. That there are many Christians in this world who do not act in a Christian way. Now today's passage is really important to us because it teaches us of why we as Christians need to practice our faith. Why we should be godly in the way that we act. Why it is that we should actually be people who are different from non-Christian people. So today I want us to look at the first passage, which is really important. And I'm actually not going to look at the whole of today's passage, but I'm going to try to break it up for us. So let's look at the first part, which says, it should appear before you now, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So you'll be glad to know that today, really, I'm only going to preach on like about four verses. But don't worry, the sermon will still take the same amount of time. But I want us to pay very great attention to each of the phrases in the sentence, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And the first thing I want you to notice is this is in the past tense, right? It has appeared before, sorry, it has appeared to all men. Can you see the word appeared? Now that means that salvation that comes to us as Christians is something that is in the past. Our salvation has appeared to us. I remember talking to a Catholic person many years ago, and I asked that person, if you die tonight, would you be saved? To which the person said to me, I'm not really sure. It depends on whether I've gone to Mass that week. It, uh, it depends on whether I had gone to confession with the priest. It depends on a whole lot of things, that like whether I had been a good person that week. But I want you to notice very carefully what verse 11 says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, past tense, to all men. And that's what it means to be a Christian according 
to the truth of the Bible today. That our salvation is not something that is happening in the future, but our salvation is something that happened in the past. And why has it happened in the past? Why do we know as Christians that we are already saved? Well, the passage goes on to say, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Now, what is grace? This word grace here is a very important word for us to know and to fully understand if we are to call ourselves Christians. Grace is the idea of something undeserved, something unmerited. It's where you don't deserve something, where you don't merit something, but you still get it. And you get it not because you've done something to deserve it, but because someone has been generous to you. Someone has been kind to you. Someone has been merciful to you. So one of the most popular hymns, uh, it's interesting that uh, Pastor Andrew talked about the different songs that may have encouraged us. One of the most popular hymns that we have sung for Christians is this song called Amazing Grace. Uh, you may sing it at funerals and you may sing it at church services, but it's a very powerful hymn. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the whole song, the whole hymn is about this amazing grace that we've received from God. Now the writer of this song was John Newton. Uh, John Newton was a slave trader. Now uh, he used to transport slaves from Africa back to England. Now, you know, you imagine in any trade or any business, there's always attrition or spoilage. You know, let's say you're transporting eggs from the from the eggs place uh, where the chicken farm is and you bring them to the, the market, you will lose eggs. Uh, if they're vegetables from the fields and you bring them to the supermarket, you'll lose some vegetables because they will all go off. But I want you to notice here that here was John Newton, a slave trader, and he was bringing people against their will from Africa all the way to England. And it was estimated that up to 50% of the slaves that were transported would die before they would reach England. And so here was John Newton, and he was a slave trader. 50% of these human beings, men, women, and children, that he was transporting from Africa to England would die and be thrown overboard the ships. So did John Newton deserve to be saved by God? Obviously, no. He was a murderer of hundreds of people, thousands of human beings. But yet he was saved by God. And he was saved not because he deserved it or he merited it, but because of God's amazing grace. And when you read the song that he wrote, it is in the past tense. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not will save, but saved in the past tense, a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. So here we see, that the grace of God has come to us, has appeared to us. And how has it appeared to us? How has this salvation through the grace of God appeared to us in the past tense? Well, we know 
from Titus, as well as from the other parts of the Bible, that the appearance of the grace of God found itself personified in the person of God's Son, Jesus the Saviour. It was found in the appearance of Jesus coming as a child through the virgin birth, through his life, through his death on the cross, and through the resurrection. Now that's why if we look forward to verse 14, in verse 14 it talks about how Jesus who appears, the grace of God who's come on earth as a human being, he gave himself on the cross for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Now this word here, redeemed, is a very important word. And it fits in with the theme of slavery. Because as a slave, you are bound up in the chains of slavery and you cannot break free on your own. But what happens is, Jesus pays or buys your release. He, he buys out, he redeems your release from slavery by paying the price of himself. And therefore, that is why we are saved in the past tense. Because Jesus has come 2,000 years ago. He gave himself on the cross to redeem us, to buy out our slavery and to set us free from all wickedness. So this first verse is full of profound theological truth. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared in the past tense to all men. And so I want to put up this virtual background for you to help you remember that. So you can see that behind me, right? In the past, what did God do? The grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ and saved us. But because of what God has done in the past, then the passage then goes on to say what we need to do in the present. And what is it do we need to do in the present? Well, the passage goes on to say uh, in this verse that we need to, it teaches us to say no to ungodly passions, so ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Now I want you to pay particular attention to this word, it teaches us. Okay, it teaches us. Now, this word here, teaches us, uh, actually is the word of parents teaching children. You know, it's just like parents teach children to brush their teeth before they sleep. Or parents teach their kids to have a shower after they exercise. Or parents teach their kids to eat them, finish their meals before eating sweets. Or parents teaching their kids to study before they go and play. So this word here, teachers, is not an optional teaching, but it's a training, instruction, commanding word. So when you know of the grace of God that brought salvation, the past tense, through the appearance of Jesus Christ redeeming us from our wickedness, Day by day by day by day, there's a continuous teaching, training, and instruction of us as Christians to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives 
in this present age. Because of what God has done in the past, we must live in this way. It teaches us, trains us, and instructs us how to live today. Now, there are two particular phrases that I want to focus on because obviously we've gone through the whole of chapter 2 and there are many, many instructions. But I think that there are two words or two phrases which bind all the practical instructions together. The first word that I want to focus on is this word self-control. Okay, self-control. Uh, this is a word that is repeated over and over and over again in the whole of chapter 2 being self-control. And the other word that I want to focus on is eager to do what is good. I think that if you have these two phrases, self-controlled, eager to do what is good, you're able to summarize everything that is contained in chapter 2 about how we must live in this present age. Now we can see that if you go back to me, with me into the Bible, well, I'll bring it up for you. So if you look here in this passage, you can actually see uh, that um, the, the word self-control keeps being repeated over and over again. I'm sorry if it's a bit small for you, but uh, if it's a bit small, it's the best I can do. Maybe you can get a bigger screen next time. But the word self-control keeps being repeated over and over again. So let me show you here for the older men, they are to be self-control. For the younger women, they are to be self-control. The young men are to be self-control. And again, as we look at uh, this passage, the idea of doing what is good, right? So here, the older women are to teach the younger women uh, through the example, uh, what is good, right? Teach them what is good. So here we can see the re repetition of doing what is good as well as the idea of living a self-controlled life. Now, this is very important for us because I want to challenge us to think about this, whether indeed we are living in the present, self-controlled and eager to do good lives. Because if we are not, then really we are not actually doing what God wants us to do. So here we see that self-control, like someone in my Bible study said, is excellent example is the not-to-do list, right? So self-control is what I shouldn't do with my life. That means the ungodly things, the worldly passions, I'm not supposed to live in the present. Eager to do good is the to-do list. You can't have one without the other, right? It's like if I live just a self-controlled life, but I'm not eager to do what is good, then I'm very being very self-inward looking uh, in my own life, right? I'm just controlling myself, but I don't help any people, I don't love any people, I don't care for any people. At the same time, if I'm eager to do good, but I'm not self-controlled, then I'm really a hypocrite. I'm just like my, my ex-boss M, uh, description of Christians. We do good things, but actually we're hypocrites because we're not self-controlled. We are not able to stop ourselves from doing the worldly, ungodly things. So if you look at this verse again, uh, this really goes against this self-control and eager to do good. It goes against our current culture. It goes against the world that we live in. So I was reading this book, which appears before you. I've mentioned it before. It takes me forever to read through this book, The All or Nothing Marriage. And there's a really wonderful quote that I found in this book, which I thought I would share with you. It says, 
as Western societies have secularized, the self has taken on ever more luster as a powerful value base. The pursuit of self-expression has become a moral good in and of itself. Now, to simplify what it's basically saying, is we live in the world without God, my authentic self, the expression of myself, being true to myself, is the most important moral thing that the world thinks is important. As long as I can express myself, be myself, that is the most important thing. Now, that is not the way that we live as Christians. That is not what Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 is teaching us. If we know the grace of God that has appeared to us in Jesus to save us, it trains us, teaches us, it instructs us every day that we must be self-controlled and we must be eager to do good. Self-control, eager to do good, is completely against the current mood of the culture today which says be true to yourself, be authentic to yourself. Do what you want. But that's the way that we must live in the present because of what God has done for us in the past. So uh, if you look at this uh, picture that I've got here again, I'm going to uh, change the slide to add to it. Sorry, I'm going to take a second. Okay. Oh, you can't see it. Okay, it's blocked by me. All right. Okay, so that's why I got this thing for you. All right, so you can see that actually, because of what God has done in the past, we must say no to uh, uh, the ungodly things of this world and live self-controlled and to be eager to do good. Now, as we look on at the next passage, uh, we will actually see that we are not saved and redeemed by God just so that we can do what we feel like doing. So I'm going to call up again a passage where you can actually see that what we are meant to be doing is actually to be uh, living in a certain way because that's who we are. So let's look now at this passage here at the later part. So it says there that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Okay, we've already covered that part. Now, when Jesus redeemed us from all wickedness, it was to purify for himself, okay, a people that were or that are his very own. That means that we are, when Jesus died, he didn't die just for us to be redeemed from all wickedness or to be bought out from our slavery to sin. It was for a purpose. We are saved for a purpose. We are saved after we are redeemed from wickedness to be purified and to belong to Jesus. Now, there are two important theological concepts here, and I don't really want to use the, uh, the big words unnecessarily. Right? But the big theological concepts are purification and discipleship. Okay, so we are redeemed from the wickedness where we pay, it's paid by Jesus for us to go free. In order for us to be purified and in order for us to be disciples of Jesus, that means we belong to Jesus. 
we are people who belong to Jesus. We are his very own people. So I want to look first at this issue of purification. Okay, so uh, I was reading a book the other day and I, and I came across this uh, very interesting quote. It's a, it's a little bit, uh, 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 okay, you might get offended, but I hope you don't. But anyway, okay, let, let me just go on a bit. So imagine if you have clean grapes. Okay, imagine you have clean grapes. You add the clean grapes to poo, uh, what do you come up with? Well, if you add clean, clean grapes to poo, you still end up with poo, right? Because the grapes have been contaminated by the poo. And in a sense, what's happening here is God has given us Jesus by His grace. Jesus has redeemed us and freed us from the poo, in a sense, of this wicked, fallen, sinful state that we're in, that we're enslaved in. And he has purified us. But if we go back to the pool of this world, we are still in the pool, isn't it? We are still back to where we began with. And Jesus doesn't want us to be like that because of what he has done in the past. He wants us to be free from the pool of the wickedness and the sinfulness and the godlessness and the worldly passions that we lived in. He wants us to live self-controlled, and eager to do good lives. In the same way, we are to be disciples of Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We do not now belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus, his own people. So I was thinking about it. Imagine if, uh, for, I mean, imagine hypothetically that you uh, migrated to Sweden, Sweden, right? Okay, so would you then spend your time learning Mandarin? learning how to uh, your Hokkien? No, you wouldn't, right? You'd be learning how to speak Swedish, uh, shopping at Ikea, and eating meatballs. So in the same way, we are no longer people who belong to ourselves. Uh, we're no longer people who belong to this world, but we are now people who are Jesus' very own people. And that means that we are transformed in the way that we live. We are transformed in our attitude. We're transformed in our very character. We are self-controlled, eager to do what is good. So if you look at this uh, passage, it's really theologically deep. Because as you did in your Bible studies, it shows us the salvation plan of God. The salvation plan of God is that God's grace appeared to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus gives himself to, uh, gives us atonement, another theological word, atone and pay for our sins. He redeemed us from our sins. He purified us from our sins. We are now disciples belonging to Jesus, eager to do what is good. But the very sad, tragic thing is that many people think that the salvation plan of God stops at the atonement. It stops at Jesus redeeming us from wickedness. Okay, that's a chewing gum there, okay, in case you're wondering what it is. They're stuck there. But that's not the salvation plan of God. The salvation plan of God is that we are saved to be purified, to be disciples of Jesus, eager to do what is good and to be self-controlled. So the challenge for us today is, are we stuck at the atonement of Jesus? Or have we heard of what God has done, have we been instructed, trained, and taught by God to live pure lives, 
to be disciples of Jesus, to be eager to do good and self-control. Because the passage then comes to the very last part. And the last part no longer speaks of the past and present, but it speaks of the future. So in the future, what is going to happen? Okay, so if you look at this passage, in the future, it says here that we are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us who have done chapter 1 in the Bible study on the sermon, this this uh, idea of waiting for the future is something that we've come across before. In chapter 1, if you remember, we were also told that Christians are waiting for something. And what are Christians waiting for? Christians are waiting for the hope of eternal life. So when you bring those two ideas together, the idea of eternal life, as well as the appearing of Jesus, what it's really saying is that with the coming of Jesus, our great God and Savior, we will receive eternal life. And that's what's going to happen in the future. Okay, so God in His grace appeared to us and Jesus saved us. Today, while we wait, we wait in self-control and eager to do good because we are now purified and we belong to Jesus. And in the future, it tells us that when Jesus appears, we will receive eternal life. Now, because we see time, we see what God has done in such a radically different way, it must mean that we are completely different people from this world. So I've been reading these two books. Uh, this first book is by J.I. Packer, Knowing God, right? Highly recommended. The copy I have here is actually my wife's, Cheryl Chung, 1990, right? So uh, it's very old, but I've only just started reading. It's fantastic. And his whole premise is you do not know just facts about God. You know God relationally because of what he has told you about. And so because you know what God has done for you in Jesus and saved you in the past, then you must live in a certain way today. And because you know what's going to happen in the future, then again it instructs you of how you are to live today. Someone gave me this book, which uh, I've been reading through. It's been quite interesting when your doctor has bad news. And this person who's a doctor, a Christian doctor, said, for the non-believer, they see time in a very different way than we see time as Christians. For the non-believer, the past, present, and the future is very short. The past is when I was born. The present is today, and the future is when I die. But we are not like that. We are not people who do not know God, right? know in a relational way. We are people who know God. And because we are people who know God, the past, present, and the future are not short units of time. They are eternal. Because we know God, we know in the past, the grace of God has appeared to us in Jesus, and saves us. And we know that the present life that we live has a purpose. And we know that the future is eternal. 
because we wait for the appearance of Jesus Christ, who gives us eternal life. So why should we be godly? Why should we practice our faith? Why should we be different from this world? It's because we know God and we know the past, present, and future. Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you so much for we are saved people. We thank you so much for Jesus who appeared, who gave his life to redeem us from the enslavement of wickedness and the judgment which comes with it. We pray that knowing these facts will instruct us, train us, and teach us to say no in self-control to ungodliness and to worldly passions, to be eager to do good, to live upright lives, as we wait for the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ and when we will receive eternal life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.